Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Michael Delgado. Dr. Michael Maria Delgado is a postdoctoral fellow at the School of Veterinary Medicine at UC Davis, where her research explores the behavior of cats in multi-cat households and the health and development of orphaned neonatal kittens. She is a certified applied animal behaviorist and co-owner of the cat behavior consulting business, Feline Minds. She offers consultations for cat guardians and rescue organizations to prevent and solve behavior problems. Michael is co-author with Jackson Galaxy of the book Total Cat Mojo and has published her research in several academic journals, including the Journal of Comparative Psychology, the Journal of Applied Animal Welfare Science, Psychological Bulletin, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and Anthrozoos, a multidisciplinary journal of the interactions of people and animals. Wow, that's a mouthful. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stacy. I'm so glad you could be with us today. I love talking with behaviorists, so you're going to get peppered with lots and lots of questions. But first and foremost, I'd like to find out how you got started in animal welfare and developed a great passion for cats. And it sounds like you have a passion for kittens, too. I have a passion for all things feline. <laughs> and I have since I was a little kid. You know, I was definitely the child who was obsessed with cats in particular. I mean, I loved all animals, but I just really was drawn to cats forever and begged my mom to let me have a cat. And, you know, I never had any real aspirations. I wasn't one of those kids that was like, I'm going to be a veterinarian when I grow up or anything like that. I just loved cats. And that said, it didn't really occur to me that you could have a job where you worked with cats until pretty late in life. And it was when one of my cats had passed away, I decided to start volunteering at the local animal shelter, which was the San Francisco SPCA. And once I got there and started volunteering, I found out that they had a program dedicated to cat behavior, which fascinated me. And the program was really cool because it focused on cats who were having difficulties in the shelter environment, which a lot of cats do get really stressed out in that environment. So it was rehabbing cats who were shy and scared, using behavior modification to improve the behavior of cats who maybe bit quickly or didn't tolerate a lot of petting. And so I was immediately like, I want to be in this program. I want to spend as much time working with these challenging cats. And eventually, I kind of wormed my way into a job there, basically volunteered so much and made myself so useful that when a job opening came up, they offered it to me. And that kind of changed everything. And so that was, um, it was in 2000 that I started at the SPCA and worked there until 2008. And that changed everything for me, really. Sorry. Speaking of it, there's my kitty Misha's coming to check out the show here. Excellent. Um, you may, may hear her in the background. But anyway, so it's really interesting. San Francisco SPCA was always thought to be sort of cutting edge, early bird to everything. Would you say that was the case back in 2000s that you had the freedom to kind of explore different opportunities and think outside of the box for cats? Absolutely. I mean, it was really amazing because honestly, our program didn't have a tremendous amount of oversight. So we were able to work with cats for long periods of time and take what we knew from veterinary behavior and from the dog trainers and really try to shape it into our own program. And we had a lot of cats that would be considered unadoptable that we were able to rehabilitate and get adopted. 
not every cat made it into a home. There were the occasional cats that ended up as barn cats or in a farm placement. But we really prided ourselves in once we'd accepted a cat into our program, we did not euthanize them for behavior. Really, once we took them in, we were dedicated to finding them a safe placement where they could live for the rest of their life. We also had an amazing volunteer pool of people who were really willing to spend time with some cats that were not particularly friendly. Uh, You might not get a lot of immediate gratification out of working with a cat who's hiding or hissing or didn't want to be petted very much. Um, But these volunteers were willing to spend time with these cats, write up really detailed assessments of them and detail their visits with them so that we could really see if the cats were progressing, were they ready for adoption, what kind of home were they ready for, and being able to place them sometimes in very specialized homes like adults only or cat experience. And what it also revealed for me was just the fact that so many cats that end up in shelters that are not behaving in ways that we would consider highly adoptable. It's not because they're not an animal that can be adopted or that they won't thrive in a home. It's really the stress of the shelter environment. And so I, I don't think of shelter cats as necessarily any different from pet cats, except that yesterday they were a pet And today they're in a shelter and their behavior may not really reflect who they were in that previous home. It's very sad because I think a lot of cats do suffer because of the stress of being in a shelter. And they suffer also because of the the fact that they don't exhibit well. And so people might make assumptions about their behavior that could have an effect on whether or not they live or die in a shelter. I certainly saw that plenty of times at Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society, where I was for well over 15 years. You know, so many cats went on hunger strikes and had bad behavioral issues. And I don't mean bad because it's just, it's part of their way. But the environment that we provided for those cats was not the environment that suited their personality. And there were a lot of challenges around that. And I have always wondered about the shelter model and whether that's really the best path for cats to have in the process of rehoming them Mm -hmm. and whether or not that's really truly the best place for them. You know, you think about children's orphanages and the fact that there's more involvement with a foster care system versus an actual orphanage now for kids. And, you know, is that maybe the better route to go for cats? I don't know the magical answers to these questions, but these are some of the questions that I would think a feline behaviorist would look at. And it seems like you're also turning to doing a significant amount of research in trying to ask different questions about cats and cats being in multi-cat household or also doing some research with orphan neonatal kittens. You're obviously spending a lot of time on these topics. Why is research so important to you, so valuable to you as well as to all of us? And what is some of the work that you're doing? So I was at the San Francisco SPCA until 2008. Some of the things that I encountered, not only building these questions about exactly what you're saying, like why is the shelter so stressful for cats? What can we do to make it better? But also part of our program was to Um, we had a behavior hotline where people could call and if they had a behavior problem with their cat, they would get free advice from us. And we would get over 100 calls a month. So there's definitely a need for people to better understand their cats. And no matter how many cats you work with, and I certainly worked with thousands of cats while I was at the SPCA, if you think you know everything about cats, pretty much the next cat you meet will just kick you to the ground (laughs) with some, you know, something you've never encountered. And I realized that I wanted to kind of take my understanding of cats to a different level. And so, So 
that led to two different things. One is that I left the SPCA and started Feline Minds with uh, my friend. And at the time, she was my coworker at the SPCA, Delara Perry. And so we started our consulting business where we could actually go into people's homes and work with owners and their cat in the home environment. And then at the same time, I also decided to return to school. And that kind of led to this, what is now an 11-year journey of academia and um, research. You know, it is hard because research takes a really long time and you may not be able to get the answers that you really want to know. So you kind of have to chip away at the questions very slowly. But for example, one of the projects I am working on is looking at how cats' feeding behavior is different based on whether the cat lives alone or if they live with another cat. We see a lot of problems with cats in multi-cat households. Certainly, one of the most challenging issues is introducing a cat smoothly. You know, we know from previous research that not all of those introductions are going to work out. One of the things we think helps cats get along better is having adequate resources in the home, including feeding stations. And so one of my projects is having cat owners put little activity trackers on their cat's collars, and then we have motion-sensitive cameras on their food dishes. And we're really just looking at whether or not the behaviors of cats differs in a two-cat household versus a one-cat household when it comes to how they eat. How much time they spend at the food dish? Are they showing more perhaps vigilant behaviors while they're eating if they live with another cat or if they live alone? Do they eat more frequently based on whether or not they live with another cat? Perhaps if they can't access a resource, one cat might always get first dibs and then the other cat has to wait. So these are the kinds of questions that I'm looking at. And, you know, it is hard to say, okay, this is going to immediately help us understand how to make multi-cat households function better. But in order to even see if there's something we need to do, we need to understand the underlying behaviors. So that's kind of one way that this very long path from working in a very applied setting in a shelter and helping clients with their cats to answering a broad research question with what I think is a pretty cool project um, where we're actually able to study cats' behaviors in their homes. There's no kitties in a lab. There's no cat being subjected to anything unpleasant. They're just kind of carrying out their normal day-to-day life in the home. Yeah, I want a couple of those trackers for my cats. I'd love to know where they're going when I'm not here. It's pretty fun. Like what one thing that's been really cool for me as a scientist is seeing how the participants have increased their interest in their cat's behavior just by being in the study. So the activity trackers don't have GPS, but they tell them when the cat is active. So they want to know what their cat is doing while they're gone all day. They're like, is he active? Is he sleeping? A lot of people have actually purchased their own cameras because now they want to spy on their cat. So yeah, I think it does have the benefit of just increasing people's awareness and curiosity about their cat's behavior. And I think it's great. It's an understanding as our world becomes more cat indoor centric, which is the trend, there's a lot more that we're going to need to do for our cats as they have an indoor life that I don't think many people think about. People think about they have to take their dog out for a walk, that kind of stuff, stimulating your dog. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, no, we don't need to do anything for the cats. We need to do a lot for our cats and we don't have that thought process in place. And so I think that's going to be a very growing industry and trend. Yeah. I mean, when people adopt a dog often the adoption agency signs you up for dog training classes right then and there on the spot. And nobody gives cat training a second thought. No one is thinking about, well, I I think people are already going into it thinking cats are low maintenance. And from my consulting work, I would say that a huge majority of cases are really due to an understimulating environment. So people don't have enough toys. They're not playing with their cat enough. They don't have enough perches or vertical space. They don't have enough other types of sensory enrichment. And so the cat's life is pretty limited. 
limited. And I definitely advocate for keeping cats indoors only for various reasons, but you have to recognize that you are restricting their experiences. And if you don't put effort into giving them some options, you will see behavior problems, especially, you know, attention-seeking behavior, aggressive behaviors like biting and scratching. You'll see litter box avoidance. And so much of these things could be avoided if we really understood their needs better and provided for their needs more effectively. Today's episode is sponsored by Space Kitty Express, your one-stop shop for exotic cat drugs. Everyone's heard of catnip, but what about valerian root, tatarian honeysuckle, or silver vine? Space Kitty Express specializes in offering these hard-to-find catnip alternatives, both in their herbal form and stuffed into a variety of reusable toys. Their herbs are 100% pure, not like those quote-unquote catnip blends you might find in a pet store. Their tartarian honeysuckle wood is cut fresh and kept frozen to lock in its citrusy scent. Their silver vine exudes a mintiness that tingles the nostrils. Their organic valerian root is so musky that they've had to blend it with organic lemongrass so that human noses can tolerate it. Cats can definitely tell the difference between these quality herbs and that stale catnip from the big box store. Visit SpaceKittyExpress.com and watch videos from satisfied feline customers. Use coupon code COMMUNITYCATS, all one word, at checkout to receive 10% off your purchase. That's SpaceKittyExpress.com with coupon code COMMUNITYCATS. Doesn't your cat deserve the best? Spoil them today at SpaceKittyExpress.com. <coughs> ProVetLogic, based in Scottsboro, Alabama, provides educational support and product solutions to professional pet care providers and pet parents throughout the country. As a licensed veterinary medical continuing education provider, ProVetLogic provides a variety of educational tools designed to help cat care providers create a cleaner and safer environment for both the cats in their care and the care providers. To learn more about ProVetLogic, please visit www.ProVetLogic.com or call 800-869-4789. So you also mentioned you're doing a little bit of work around orphan neonatal kittens. Can you share a little bit about what you're doing in that area? Sure. So at UC Davis, there's actually a, an organization run by veterinary students called the Orphan Kitten Project, and it's been going for years. And basically, they foster out and care for kittens who've been separated from their mom before they've been weaned. So these are bottle babies, most of them. And so what we realized was, first of all, there's this huge population of kittens readily available to us on campus. Uh, through this foster program. And there's almost zero research on these kittens. And there's certainly a lot of maybe anecdotal reports about orphan kittens. You'll hear a lot of things about bottle babies having behavior problems. And to be honest, we don't know if those problems are perhaps reduced if the kitten has litter mates versus being a singleton. We don't really know the effects of being separated from mom. Obviously, these kittens can be raised by humans, bottle-fed, cared for. They get adopted. They are pets. Um, so it's not like like there's anything wrong with being a bottle baby. But what we don't know is really how does losing your mother affect your health, your behavior? And if losing your mother at a young age does affect your health and behavior, then we should know so that we can help those kittens either through medical care or by behavioral interventions so that we can feel confident that they are going to have a healthy, happy life just like any other kitty. 
And so we became interested in a couple of things. Um, one is just like, what are the best conditions to raise these kittens in? Uh, we know that when they're young, they're what's called poikilothermic, meaning they cannot regulate their body temperature. So we've been testing the effects of keeping them in incubators. So we have foster parents who are keeping kittens in incubators at set temperatures and humidities, and we're looking at how that affects their growth. And we're also looking at how being separated from their mother at a young age affects a part of their DNA called telomeres. And telomeres are these protective caps on the ends of your DNA that basically protect your cells when they replicate. So when your cells replicate, some stuff gets cut off at the ends. And you don't want that stuff that's getting cut off to be important stuff. So there's kind of this extra bit at the end that protects your cell. So when the telomeres, which are the extra bit at the end, get too short, then your cell dies. And so telomeres have been associated with health issues and even uh, mortality in other species. And so we are currently having our blood samples analyzed, but we're comparing telomeres in kittens who've been separated from their moms with that of kittens who have been reared by their mothers. So perhaps when I come back in the future, I'll have some interesting results to report. So those are a couple of things that we're looking at with neonatal kittens. And then the other thing that kind of came up during the study was the fact that a lot of orphaned kittens exhibit um, what we call misdirected oral behavior, uh, where they're sucking on their litter mates. Again, this seems to be a commonly reported behavior among foster parents. Most people who have been working with neonatal kittens are not surprised that we've discovered that a lot of kittens exhibit this behavior, but there's been no research on it. So we're really interested in why some kittens develop this behavior and others don't, even from the same litter, and just better understanding of what it means, why they do it, what are the possible harmful effects, and how can we prevent it. So we are looking at that behavior this summer. We have a couple of um, projects. Hopefully, we're going to be able to test some interventions that we hope will be more effective than what foster parents typically do. Um, because really the only options now are to separate the kittens from their litter mates, which we think is socially detrimental, or to put barriers like clothing, or I've seen people put bags on kittens' heads, and I don't think that those options are very ethical either. So we are hoping to come up with some solutions to that problem. So it's kind of a broad attack at trying to figure out these kittens and understand what they need to thrive. And, um, you know, they are a very specialized population. They're very fragile. A lot of them do pass away. So anything we can do to help save more of them and to make the experience better for foster parents, um, we hope will help more of these kittens. Wow. So you're covering a wide range of different components in there. The suckling is something that I've known about for years. Foster homes and, you know, many of those kittens developed that. And also they've always said, oh, they're much more comfortable around people. They're more social, seem to be more focused around that human element than maybe a kitten raised by a mom. That's another question that has come up. And there are many folks that like would come and request a, a bottle babe with that sort of knowledge in the back of their mind. Now, telomeres, that's totally cool. Had my telomeres tested. Um, so oh, cool. It's, it's a measure of your biologic longevity versus your chronologic age. It's a biological age measurement versus your chronological age measurement. Yes. And so there's a lot of theories around that. I actually just listened to a podcast recently about the controversy around different styles of testing to be able to get the testing done accurately. There's tons of businesses that do it for people. But anyway, I think that's a really interesting conversation. And then there's certain supplements you can take 
that can make your chronological age go down. And it's, you know, not quite there, but it's almost in that stem cell conversation. And so I I find that fascinating. Yeah. And there's even been research in humans showing that exercise and meditation might promote an enzyme that helps prevent telomere shortening. So um, certainly if we find that there's a difference between bottle babies and kittens that have stayed with their mom, then the question is, what kind of interventions can we test to reduce that shortening? You know, the thing with research is like one question just leads to another, which is good because your job is never done. It's bad because you're never done, right? You kind of want to tie everything up in a bow and say, I know everything about this question. And that just never happens. But it's also great because it's fun. Right. Um, there, one person made the suggestion from a, from a human side of things that no matter what you do, you cannot get your telomeres adjusted to any way so that you could live longer than 125 years because the crowd that they're trying to sort of hack their way to longevity through a whole range of different testing and that kind of thing. And one other component, which I'm sure you're looking at too, is obviously the fact that you've got bottle milk versus your mother's milk and those components too. That's a huge thing in the human world. And I apologize to my daughter over and over again that I did not breastfeed her because little did I know what I didn't know then. Then, sure. And, um, for a variety of reasons, you know, didn't do that. But now I realize that there's a huge amount of benefits to being breastfed. Yeah. And we are also looking at the kittens at two time, sam- uh, time points. So we're looking at them in their first week of life and then when they're getting ready for spay and neuter. So we would anticipate if there's any effect of, say, bottle milk versus mother's milk, that as time goes on, that effect would become even stronger. Um, we'll see if continued separation from the mother has a bigger effect than that initial moment of separation, which of course, there could be many reasons that kittens are separated from their mothers. They could be mother centered where the mother abandoned her kittens, or more likely they're really driven by, of course, people finding kittens and not realizing that mom just went to go get a snack and she's coming back. But you know, a panicked person that finds abandoned kittens does not always have the ability to stay around and see if mom's coming back, or they just don't feel confident leaving those kittens there alone, then they end up in a shelter. And of course, being in a shelter is a dangerous place for a neonatal kitten to be if they don't have mom because the shelter needs someone to feed that kitten around the clock, which many shelters do not have that ability. So Michael, um, what was it like working with Jackson Galaxy on the book Total Cat Mojo? It was great. You know, Jackson and I had been friends for quite a while. And you know, if you work in this field, most of us who have been doing cat behavior for a while know each other because, you know, until recently, there just weren't that many of us. I would say it's a growing field. And there's definitely a growing market for our services, which is great. So anyway, Jackson and I had hung out several times. And, you know, one day he just called me and was like, okay, I need to write this book and I need you to help me. (laughs) So um, (laughs) it was certainly, it was a bigger project than I had anticipated at the time because I was in the process of finishing my dissertation at the same time. So I was kind of juggling these two projects, but we did have a lot of fun writing it. It was cool for me to kind of see how you go from start to finish for such a big project because writing a book is a pretty huge endeavor and also just seeing how you work with editors and book agents. And so it was a great learning experience. It was fun for me to really try to figure out what is the most important information we want to put in this book. And, you know, Jackson really wanted me to be the science That was what he always would jokingly call me, you know, which was just to make sure that the facts were there and that we were showing research that supported the things that we were saying as much as possible, but also making it really fun, accessible, easy to read. And, you know, he just has a really, I find, um, engaging voice in his writing. And so he's a really wonderful human being. So yeah, it was it was a good experience for me, for sure. But it was definitely down to the wire as far as meeting deadlines. It was Uh, It was a little dicey at the end, but we pulled it off with some, you know, playing with the, the company that we needed some extensions on deadlines, but got it done on time. 
many people when they talk about the process of writing a book. They're happy they did it. They're glad it's over. And they really don't relish going through the process again. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have some aspirations to write a book or two later, but um, not in a huge rush to do it again. If folks are interested in finding out more about the work that you're doing or any of the research or how, how would people access that information? Sure. I maintain a website, my name, michaeldelgado.com. And from there, you can find links to my blog and also my business, Feline Minds, where I offer consulting services. I'm on Twitter at uh, Michael underscore Maria. So that's M-I-K-E-L underscore M-A-R-I-A. I'm pretty active on um, Twitter as far as just sharing articles about cats, cat behavior, new research. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm around. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Um, you know, we didn't really get into kind of the nitty gritty of behavior consulting. But what I would like to say is, you know, a lot of people, by the time they contact a behavior consultant, they are, as they often say themselves, at their wits end. And I do think that cats are really misunderstood. And I would definitely encourage people to have compassion when they're experiencing a behavior problem with their cat and know that behavior can be changed. You can train cats and you can train humans, which is often part of the puzzle. But I definitely, especially from working in a shelter and seeing what happens when the human animal bond is broken or when a cat's having behavior issues. You know, I know what those outcomes lead to. And so I definitely encourage people to seek out qualified help and not give up on their cats. And I would say to do it as early as possible. Don't wait until you are exasperated or your house smells like cat urine and you're beyond any sort of return. It's Absolutely. really important to, I would say, go to the behaviorist before you go to the veterinarian almost because it's there are different mysteries that need to be solved, which sometimes cannot be solved by a vet visit. You know, ideally, it's a team effort. I always appreciate it when I'm working with a veterinarian and the client together. And, you know, certainly there are some behavior problems that are due to medical issues, but a lot of them are, are due to environmental issues. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show today. And I really hope we'll have you on in the future, uh, maybe when a couple of these studies are out. I would love to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Join us for a webinar on March 23rd, 2019 at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Trapping Tips and Tricks presented by Neighborhood Cats. Drawing from almost 20 years of experience working with feral cats, the folks at Neighborhood Cats have gathered together their favorite ways of catching the wiliest of felines, whether it's putting in a clear rear door, using spam as bait, wrapping your trap with green garden netting, or training a cat to enter a trap, you're bound to learn something new that will improve your trapping success. Come prepared to share your secret tips and tricks too. After registering, you will receive a confirmation email containing information about joining the webinar. Please check it out at www.communitycatspodcast.com and sign up today. Ah!